from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Beloved, let's read the entire prologue, all 18 verses, that we might get a sense of how John 1, 1 through 3 fits into the broader picture. John writes this in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we turn to this this first order truth, this word, and how we ask, as I have already, that you would open our eyes to its beauty, its depth, its glory, its majesty that belongs to all who believe. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So our first point is this. In order order for us to worship the Lord and be equipped to think rightly about the world, we must understand that He is the uncreated Word of God. Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I've said this several times, but this is one of the most incredible verses in all of Scripture. It's rivaled only by the one to which it points, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In fact, as we make our way through this, we'll see that the Holy Spirit was using Genesis 1.1 to inform John as he wrote this gospel. There are three very important truths in these verses, especially in John 1.1, but they're each spoken in light of a heading in the beginning. So let's dwell on that for just a moment. In the beginning, it isn't like how we would start a children's story, right? Once upon a time. Because in the beginning, there was no time. This refers to the beginning, the absolute beginning. In the beginning, both in Genesis and in John, there was only God. That meant there was eternal fullness and goodness and friendship and fellowship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Two things the beginning was not. You ready? Number one, it's not nothingness. 
the utter absence of everything like we might think of in a black hole in space. It's not that. Number two, it's not some primordial soup of unorganized matter waiting for a fictitious big bang to order it all. No, in the beginning, there was God and there was nothing with him. One commentator writes this, God alone is the eternal and imperishable one. There is no hint of an eternal formless matter. In the beginning, John goes further. He introduces these three, what I would just consider titanic statements. The first one is this, in the beginning was the word. Now, was is a simple and small word, isn't it? In English and in Greek, (laughs) we know it comes from the verb to be, okay? John tells us in the beginning, the word was. In the absolute beginning, when there was nothing created, the word was there. Not that he became or that he wasn't, but that he simply was. Genesis tells us, in the beginning, God. John simply expands on that by saying, in the beginning was the word. As God was, the word was. Paul says it this way in Colossians 1, 17. And he, that is Christ, is before all things. And in him all things hold together. So in the beginning was the word. But in the beginning was the word. What is a word? What is a word? Isn't it a spoken thought? Calvin and other church fathers translated this Greek word logos with speech rather than word. The reasoning was that the word of John 1.1 wasn't a single utterance, so to speak, but it was a conversation that had been and continues and will be. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that how Jesus described himself? I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. The word of John 1.1 isn't an isolated word. Words don't exist that way, do they? Words are connected to thoughts. Words are separate from thoughts. They're distinct, but they are inseparable from them. In fact, you can't think a thought without a word. Try it. We certainly can't communicate them without words. The church father, Basil of Caesarea in the 4th century, he says, words are effigies of thoughts. You know what an effigy is? It's an image, a representation, a likeness. We've read it already this morning, but listen to what the writer of Hebrews, how he speaks of the relationship between the Father and the Son. He says this, He, that is the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. And he upholds the world by the word of his power. The the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. As a word is to a thought. You think about our own sun out there. The radiance of the sun and the sun are separate. But they're inseparable. When Philip asked Jesus to show him the Father. Do you remember what Jesus said? John 14 verse 9. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me, remember what he said? Has seen the Father. The Son is the Word of God. He is the eternal image of the Father. He is the expressed wisdom of God. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22 reads this, The Lord possessed me, that is wisdom, at the beginning of His work. The Word of God is the Father's wisdom. 
his character, his power, his splendor, and his image expressed in a person. He is God's self-expression, self-disclosure. In fact, the connection between the Word of God and God is so close that Jesus said this in John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. In the beginning was the Word. But John presents a very important additional teaching. In the beginning, the Word was with God. Jesus' words in John 10, 30, we might be thinking that we're looking at a God who who appears at one point as a son, another point as a father, another point as a spirit. That's an ancient heresy called modalism. That God appears in different roles or different modes. The Father in the Old Testament, the Son in the Gospels, the Spirit in the, in the Pauline letters. Now, in the beginning, the Word was with God. Two very important things to see here. We see the same verb as before, was. But here... It's used in connection with God, was with God. That means they are two and have always been two. We know that's not the full picture because we know there are three. But we expect this because if Jesus is the word of God, the divine self-expression, then we would know that a word doesn't exist on its own. We also know from Hebrews 1 especially that the word is the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature. To call the Lord the Word, John subtly indicates a a distinctiveness to him, a separateness to him. Here he makes it obvious. The Word was with God. That is, the Word wasn't born. He wasn't created. The Word didn't come along after God. The Word was with God, eternally alongside God. Thoughts beget words. Beget is an old word, right? But that's why, the, that's why the creeds have always said the Son was begotten of the Father, not made. He's the divine self-expression, eternally the exact imprint of the nature of God. He didn't just appear on the scene as part of creation. We'll come back to that. The second thing it's important to see in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God is the way that John describes his relationship to God. He was with God. Now, we don't make anything of it in English. It's a, just another preposition, right? But in the Greek, this word with is most often translated as to or toward, unless the context is people being involved. Mark 14, 49, Jesus says, every day I was with you. Paul talks about being away from the body and being at home with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. That's our word. For the word to be with God means to be in close personal relationship with Him. What would need to be true for this to happen? Well, the word would need to be there in the beginning. He would have to be self-existent. Was the word, the divine self-expression, with God. We're talking about not a created word, but one who is God Himself. The word was with God at the beginning. Already we've seen strong evidence of the deity of the Word. John makes it explicit in our last phrase, and the Word was God. The way John writes this is full of emphasis. In the Greek, the word God is first. So it answers the question, in what category does the Word belong? Is He the Creator or is He God? Those are the only two choices. John's answer is a resounding, He is God. God. 
As if to summarize his overall point, look at verse 2. He writes simply, he was with God in the beginning. John begins his gospel with a first order truth. He who was born in a manger was the incarnate one who was with the Father in the absolute beginning. Why does John make us start there? Why does he make us sit in this particular truth? Two reasons. First, we must recognize the Savior of God's people is not of this world. All other religions would say things like, save yourself, do this and be saved. But no, John says the Savior of God's people is not of this world. He's not a principle to be lived out. He's not a formless deity that we make in our own image, calling Him whatever we like, uh, giving Him whatever power or permission we like, or whatever homage or worship we like. No, He was. Which is to say, He isn't like anything we could imagine. You ever thought about that? He's the fullness of, The fullness of his being and form can't be summarized. He's timeless. But he was with God, alongside the Father, in the company of the Spirit, relating to God as his Father, as close as a word is to a thought. And he was God, with all the rights and privileges, with all the power and might and glory, with all the love and goodness and kindness. Beloved, though the Scripture also speaks of his true humanity, we cannot begin there. John will not allow it. The other Gospels make his humanity very clear, but John tells us foremost, the Savior of this world is not of this world. He is God. Secondly, what does this mean? It means that what he has earned for all who believe isn't of this world, but it's of the next world. He is before all things. He is not of this world, but has come in order to be the door for His people to enter into the next. The way for us to our eternal home, the life of that next world now. In giving the Spirit to those who put their trust in Him, He has deposited eternity in our souls, the next life, the passage to which He's purchased with His body and His blood. In corporate worship here, the means of grace, we are revived with the essentials of the next life even now. I don't know what you think about during the first six days of the week, but you come in here and the next life is unmistakably clear. The question is, do you know that next life? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ so that there is a next life with Him for you? And for those of you who have, what did you come in here to see? A man finally dressed? I hope not. We aren't simply here because it is what Christians do on this day. God has called us here, inviting us by His Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that He can keep His promise of delivering into our souls a little bit more of the next life. Beloved, that's why we come to worship. That by the power of the Spirit, the Lord would use His means of grace and give a little bit more of the next life to us. So that as we walk outside there, we're not so captivated by the dim lights of our Christmas presents. We can't only come here 
to be outfitted to live in the complications of our lives. We can't only come here so that we're a little less depressed, a little less anxious, or even a little more godly or a little more self-controlled. No, beloved, those things are not of this world. He has so much more in store for us here. In corporate worship, he does offer us rest and rejuvenation for today. But more importantly, in corporate worship, the word opens the windows of the next life and he allows us to know it more. The good and the bad and the ugly of this life will be no more. Those things the Lord did not purchase with his body and blood. As he is not of this world, neither is our true fullness, beauty, peace, and joy. Beloved, what else could we possibly need more during Advent than that? So bombarded. I get a dozen Black Friday emails on non-Black Friday. I was getting them last week. Over and over and over again. Our fullness, beauty, Peace and joy are not of this world. Listen to Paul in Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Beloved, too often we seek so little in him when He's given us so much. Beloved, seek your rest, your peace and joy and hope in this life in Him, but do not allow your souls to be satisfied, contented with those things. Those are just tokens, samples, appetizers. Good as they may be, they're not the meal. Enjoy the appetizers, but don't fill up on them. Look forward to that meal. Plead with the Holy Spirit that he would open your eyes to the depth and breadth of what the uncreated word has made available to you. This is where John starts, the being and the nature of the word. Interestingly, he quickly moves into another very important point about the word of God. This is our second point. In order to worship the Lord, be equipped to think rightly about the world, we must understand that he is the word that created In verse 3, John is no longer discussing the the nature, the the deity and eternality of the word, rather his relationship to creation. He he states the same thing in two different ways. Look at verse 3. All things through him were made, and without him nothing that was made had been made. So the positive presentation is this. All things through him were made. We find three things in this part of the verse. All things. All things were made through the Word. We'll get a snapshot of, uh, we'll see more of this in a moment, but here's a snapshot from Psalm 33. By the Word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth, all their host. We return to Genesis chapter 1 and the six days of creation. We see what John means by all things. All things that exist, exist because the Word created them. There's one mysterious exception. You listening? Evil. I say it's both mysterious and an exception, not because it was created by another God, but that we don't know how it has come. The Bible is silent on that. 
Let's consider that briefly. The word who exemplifies all of the fruit of the Spirit eternally, perfectly, cannot at the same time be the author of evil. John has, James has told us in his book, this is not possible. Let, one, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. The origin of evil is a mystery. The actions of evil are not, Right? It was the devil who deceived Eve and Adam's failure to do his priestly duty in the garden that's plunged the world into this estate of sin and misery. All that we can say about evil's origin is that it did not come from the character and nature of God as he has revealed himself in the word. All things through him were made. Through him means that he is the agent of creation. This is all over the scriptures. Colossians 1, verse 16, for by him, that's Christ, for by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Hebrews 1, verse 2, but in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This relationship between the father and the son in creation is exposed a little bit more in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. Listen closely. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. The Word is the Father's agent to create all the things that He intended to be made. Thirdly, all things through him were made. As is obvious in the ESV and other translations, we're looking at a different verb now. Instead of all things were, right? In the beginning was the word. Instead of all things were, it's different. All things were made. What the word created was not eternal with him. He brought it into being in the beginning. John 1 verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Beloved, it cannot both be true that He and all things are eternal. Either the universe is eternal and we should worship it, or the Word is and we should worship Him alone. So John says the same thing a little differently. Look at the rest of verse 3. And without Him, nothing that was made had been made. This is simply Him reiterating the same point. In other words, there can be no creation apart from Him. Nothing in creation came about apart from him. Nothing. Nothing in creation came about apart from him. Through him all things were made. Apart from him, if that's even possible to imagine, nothing would have been made. Now, keeping in mind, the Bible tells us neither, uh, he neither did nor could do evil. There, there's nothing. There's nothing that we can point to in all of creation and say, God didn't make that. The Word didn't speak that into existence. Nothing. Genesis 1 again. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters. And it was so. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day and night. What do you think is next? 
And it was so. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of heavens. And, and God saw all, that it was all good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. What's missing? What is there in all of creation that cannot be found in these verses? We know already that the Word was the agent of creation. He is the one through whom all things were made. These words, and God said, the speech of the Word. What did He leave out? Nothing. Nothing is left out. See, if we do not believe in the Genesis 1 creation narrative, then how can we believe John 1 verse 3? If we do not believe John 1 verse 3, or if we do, how can we disbelieve the Genesis narrative? That the Word spoke and creation sprung into being. And now by the Word of His power, the, the Word upholds all that He has made. Two points to make here, beloved. Number one, Jesus and creation are not the same. Now, this might be obvious, though it's not obvious to everyone. This has two important implications. Number one, he cannot be part of creation since he made it all. We know he was with God in the beginning, before anything was made. God didn't make him and then through him make all of creation. So any religion or viewpoint that makes him part of creation is wrong. Religions like Hinduism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, this New Age stuff cannot be true. They confuse or they conflate the Creator and the creation. No one in this world, nothing in this world is worthy of our worship. Our stewardship and responsible care, of course, but not our worship. The second implication is this. He and the creation are not both eternal. In the beginning, only God was. Nothing else was there. It's not as if there was this soup of matter, unorganized, and God floating around out there. If that were true, then who's God? Our church has historically understood God's creation in terms of our confession. It pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. You see, by Genesis and John, evolution and all of its children cannot be true. The Big Bang cannot be true. Creation isn't its own entity hurtling along according to some nonsensical principle of random acts of chance. There's nothing in the world except God until the world spoke and it was so. The second main point here is that the words power and wisdom and goodness are not connected to this world. What I mean is that these things existed before all things and are not tied to creation. Now just think about that for a minute. His power, His wisdom... And his goodness are not connected to the world. 
They existed before the world. So nothing in creation matches his power. And it was his power that made all other powers. Asteroids that will make us extinct. Climate change that will supposedly kill off our children's, grandchildren's generation. Or worldwide nuclear war that will ruin the earth. These things have no power over the power of the word that upholds creation. We have nothing to fear from creation because it is not as powerful as the Creator who has promised to uphold it, sealing it in the rainbow until the Word is ready to return. Nothing in creation matches His power. Nothing in creation matches His wisdom. It was His wisdom that made all other wisdoms. Nothing found rampant in our schools will be so persuasive that God's covenant children will be lost. It just isn't that wise. Nothing in the UN or Congress or the EU or China or India will overturn the wisdom of God found in the Word. We don't need to worry that there's something in creation that's just waiting to be discovered that's going to show that our faith was foolish. No, the wisdom of God created all other wisdoms. His Word was first, His wisdom was first, and it will be last. Nothing in creation matches His power. Nothing matches His wisdom. Nothing matches His goodness. It was His goodness that made all other things good. I ate a bunch of those the other day. You probably did as well. There are wonderful things in creation. Relationships of love and friendship. There's art, some art, music, sculpture, the mountains, the oceans, stars and the wonders of space travel, medicine, technology, These are wonderful goods in creation. And we know, we know in our sins that they can be dangerous distractions for us. We can be over-contented with material, earthly things, allowing our minds to be taken off the creator and the sustainer. At no time during the year is that more dangerous than Advent, right? We can even start to live for the, the, the stimulation of worldly things because they're so very alluring, exciting, even promising but they're created things. They're created things. And they only ever provide limited joy, satisfaction, or happiness. Beloved, this is so important. So many of us will spend so much money filling our homes and our children's lives with the things of this world. Tell me I'm a liar. We all do this. Are we wrong to do this? Not necessarily. But are we making it difficult for ourselves and our children to feast our eyes on the unseen beauty and glory of the Word and all He has done? Probably. The design of all of God's earthly blessings is to lift our eyes up in thanksgiving and wonder over how could He make such wonderful things, but more so that those gifts, as I said, they're just gifts of goodness now. They're just tokens. They're just samples. If that's true, if we can enjoy things that are truly good, then what on earth awaits us in the next life? Will, will, will Christmas and all of your gifts, as you sit around and open them and enjoy them and eat all of your traditions and get all fat, will that allow you to lift up your eyes and say, I can't believe this is so good. This is nothing compared to the next life. Isn't that what the Lord would have you do as you looked at all of those gifts, as you opened all of those things, as you put on those extra pounds? Isn't that why, in part, the Lord has given us the supper? Isn't the supper interesting? 
What is the supper anyway? Why did he give it to the church? What role or function does it serve in our lives? During Advent, the supper speaks to us. It says, don't forget the gift of the body and blood of the Lord far surpasses all other gifts. Forget or minimize this gift and your joy and satisfaction in all other gifts will quickly fade. So let's eat. Speaking of gifts, how many of you are enjoying the Christmas decorations around here? I don't know who did it, but thank you, whoever did. They're beautiful. John 1, 1 through 3. It's complex, isn't it? There's richness there that we easily skip over. Yeah, we know these verses. We know the Word was. We know the Word was with God. We know the Word was God. We might even step into the next verse and say, we know that He made all things and nothing was made that He is not Himself made. These are first order fundamental truths. They, they inform how we think about the baby in the manger, don't we? Right? That baby in the manger is God who took on human flesh, the one who was before time, who spoke creation into existence and then penetrated it jumped into it. He took on human flesh. He became, in his way, clay and no longer the potter. He was perfect. You know the story. He, he lived a perfect life. Someone had to live a perfect life. God's holiness demands that to be true. We have no fellowship with the Father in our sins. We, we cannot. His holiness will not allow it. And so, God took on human flesh, and He was born on that Christmas morning, the beginning of His ministry of redemption. He's given us this meal as a sign of what He's done, but as a, a seal. Here, as with the Word and our prayers and the fellowship, He gives us a little bit more of what He's promised to us. If you eat in faith, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ... If you've joined a church, this church or another church, enjoying fellowship in the body of Christ, if you are striving to, to appreciate, to live in, to be contented with the things that you've been given in Jesus Christ, but you do so imperfectly, right? You still envy, we still sin, we still lust, we still get angry, all of that. This table is the place where we are refreshed and renewed. You can't eat this table out there. God has given it to us in here that we might be filled again, that we might live out there. Paul said this, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. This meal is what the Lord has given to His people. But He has expectations that as we approach this table, 
we approach it as his table and not ours. It's the table that he has set before us. And so, as I said, this table is for those who are in the kingdom of God. But he asks us, Paul continues, he exhorts us that we might receive all of what he intends for us here by eating the bread and the cup, that we contemplate, we examine ourselves, we ask the Lord to show us, do I know the body and blood of the Lord? Do I, do I enjoy the body of Christ? Am I, am I together with my brothers and sisters waiting for that moment when that last trumpet will sound? He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Beloved, do not be guilty. Examine yourself now and then eat of the bread and of the cup. Take a moment to pray all that we have been been saying this morning and ask the Lord to seal it to your hearts, to reveal the ways in which you maximize the world and minimize its creator. Our Father, we thank you for this gift. You've given us a gift in the Lord's day. You've given us the gift of the means of grace. You've given us this gift of this meal. And Lord Jesus, we we want to cast our eyes upon you as you've been revealed in your word. The word that spoke and all things were created. The word that has been alongside the Father and the Spirit for eternity and will be the Word who is now our Lord and our King, our Savior and our hope. Father, we pray that you would please, please overcome that sin that lingers on that would keep us from enjoying the fullness of what you have for us in this bread and in this cup. And that we might eat and drink and have that next life joy. Do this, Lord, we ask, even as we pray this prayer that you taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever.